Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. race is on and Sergio Perez won the Singapore Grand Prix despite race-long pressure from Charles Leclerc to take the fourth victory of his career, while teammate Max Verstappen's possible coronation will have to wait after a troubled run to seventh. But was Perez fortunate to get away with a safety car violation and why did so many drivers get it wrong at the Marina Bay circuit? I'm Ed Straw and joining us to answer those questions and many more are Scott Mitchell-Malm and Mark Hughes. Well, Scott, great to be back in Singapore, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely is. Um, missed this race. F1's missed this race. I think every single driver's missed this race. Or maybe maybe after Sunday they were uh, missing it a little bit less because it is quite a gruelling one. Uh, but yeah, super, super cool to be back. This is a, it's a really interesting place to be. And um, just a, obviously we've had the elements thrown at us this weekend, which has added a little bit of extra spice. But it's definitely one of the... Um, I think it's. I think it's a modern classic. Is it fair to call? Does, that, does it qualify as modern classic now? Oh, 100 percent. We were talking about this the other day, weren't we, Mark Hughes, on the yep. podcast about how great it is to be here? Yeah, absolutely, it, it, it does. But um, even though this race didn't really live up to the the, the, the quality of the venue, the the, the quality of the um, the uniqueness really of the the the, the setting, um, that was for. Um, a, a lot of reasons which we can we can go into later on in the podcast, but um, in terms of its uh, place on the calendar, it's 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 yeah, it's it, I, I think it's essential. I think it's a it's a brilliant venue. And even when you have a race that wasn't that dramatic in terms of the racing, there was still a lot of storylines, a lot of incident, and it kept you on your toes all the way through. I thought it was actually quite a quite a nice like slow burn. The first half was it was a bit difficult, but it was because of the conditions and everything. It had enough to sort of keep you poised and then there was a, an increasing amount of chaos in the second half and for a 
for a good chunk of that final stint, wasn't really sure what the end result was going to be at the front, let alone further down. So I actually thought it was uh, quite good, but I, I would agree it certainly didn't um, didn't quite match some of the absolute peaks that we've seen from the Singapore Grand Prix. Yeah, sometimes it's about the threat of a change in the race order rather than what happens and whether there is one that defines an exciting race. I would say it was a it was a tense and gripping one rather than a thriller, but there's nothing wrong with that. I still enjoy a, a race like that. So let, let's get into it, Mark. The bare facts of how Perez won, leading from start to finish, are pretty straightforward. But how well executed a victory was this for him? Oh, extremely well. Um, he got um, a, a pretty good run of um, circumstances around him, um, not least his teammates' um, fueling problem in, uh, in, in qualifying. Um, and, you know, you, you, you put in things like how the, the way that the, the, the circuit dried so slowly meant that there were no opportunities for overtaking um who who caught which patch of wet track on the start and yeah he he, he was he was fortunate in some ways but he he made absolute maximum use of them um he was under a lot of pressure for a lot of the race didn't really put a foot wrong had a little moment up part of the way through it but you know nothing really and yeah, he just he converted. Um, he, he converted a, a good set of circumstances perfectly. And while he's obviously had this really difficult run recently, to be able to do this, Scott, get this win, it, it was surely his best win in Formula One, I think, given the pressure he was under. That reflects very well on him, doesn't it, that he was able to, to do that at a time when things are going so wrong for him over an extended period really yeah um he he called it his best win in and best performance in formula one because of the intensity of that of the whole race but obviously then it it, it ends up peaking with that that final stint where it must have been just immensely difficult the tracks dried enough for everybody to be on slicks by that point but it's still certainly damping a few little bits here and there and definitely low grip even in the bits that aren't aren't damp so very very difficult under a lot of pressure from from Leclerc. So I, yeah, I think I think it was I think it was very good. I did wonder in that bit when Leclerc was really pressuring him if he might just be getting a little bit uncomfortable and pro, and might make an error. But he, he kind of got through that, didn't he? Yeah, there was a bit where it did look like oh actually the, like it could be creaking a little bit here. But to be honest, the only real mistakes he made were like tiny tiny apex misjudgments and then like little slides here and there. But only in. Pl- he only ever did that in places where Leclerc couldn't capitalise. And you saw with what Verstappen did, Lewis Hamilton did, a couple of other drivers as well, it's so easy to make a big, big mistake um, just at any point in this Grand Prix, really. And I, it's one of those where like, it's very diff- it's very easy to overlook how hard it was just to drive a, almost like just a decent Grand Prix because <laughs> there were quite a few people made made big errors. I think... My main takeaway from this from Perez afterwards, you you talked about that difficult run, and I think the evidence of that difficult run was in sort of what he said afterwards when he turned on the media a little bit and said that it's been he called it a bit of a rough patch, and said it had been made into something bigger than it was by the media. And even which I always think is a sign of a driver that's struggling to really cope with criticism or scrutiny, turned it into a nationality thing and suggested it might be because he's Mexican, but. Any scrutiny over the last however many races has, has not been because of where Checo's from or his nationality. It's He's driving for Red Bull, the team that's going to win both championship and the team with which Max Verstappen has won the last five Grand Prix. While in that same run, 
Perez had only been on the podium once, I think, and his performance had been nowhere near Max's level, certainly not consistently enough. So that was where the scrutiny came from. It was just he wasn't doing as good a job as he'd been doing in the first half part of the year. And this result doesn't change the fact that that trend existed. It just bucked the trend, which, if anything, I think actually means Perez deserves more credit because it means he's picked himself up from a low and, and, and come out swinging and done a great job here. What's key now is that he builds on it. If he can turn this into a run of good performances, then that's what shows the critics that they were wrong to to doubt whether, you know, what his ultimate ability was, whether he d- deserved a drive at, at Red Bull, what, what he would be capable of. It doesn't change the fact that he wasn't performing that well before this because he had to raise his level to do a job like he did today. Well, the simple fact is at the start of the season when he was going really well, people say, oh, could he be in a championship contention because he's doing really well and then when he was doing badly people were saying well he's doing badly and he's clearly slumping well out of championship contention and well off max that's just the reality of it if if you're in a in a, in a top team uh, but Mark this is absolutely what he's here to do isn't it on a day where Verstappen couldn't win Perez is there beating the Ferraris on merit that's a big tick for him isn't it yeah it is absolutely and that is um th- there's two things he's there to do one is to pick up the pieces when Max is, uh, hits trouble and uh, the other thing is to be um, close enough to the front to be a strategic blocker for the opposition. Um, that wasn't a role required of him today, obviously, starting from the front row, but um, he, he did the other role to perfection today. Um, but yeah, just to sort of gone on from, from the, the, the criticism that Scott was talking about, um, they're just numbers. They're, you, you can't argue with the numbers. Um, he was, uh, for the last half a dozen races, twice as far off his teammate as Daniel Ricciardo was off his. And Daniel Ricciardo is being released as a result of that level of performance. But, of course, it doesn't look that way when you're in a car that's further up the grid. But that was reality. Um, let's see if he can uh, build on this. I mean, he is very, very good at, at street circuits anyway. So if he was going to recover anywhere, it was going to be here. But if he can use this result to sort of overcome his any, any confidence crisis he's been suffering and, and perform on more conventional tracks. Um, next weekend at Suzuka will be you know, a very good uh, test of that. We mentioned the street circuit, so I was going to throw this question at Scott, but I'm going to throw it at you. Of course, we always have questions from the Race Members Club, so for anyone who wants to sign up, head to therace.com and click on Join the Race in the top right to find out more. It's a double question. James Busher asked, having now won in Monaco, Azerbaijan and Singapore and been on pole in Saudi Arabia, is Perez the current best driver on the grid around street circuits? And Andy Sale asks, am I wrong in thinking he's stronger on temporary street circuits than on permanent circuits? And are there reasons he performed better than he has in the last few races here? Um, He's absolutely not wrong in that he does tend to perform better on street circuits than conventional circuits. His whole career has shown that. Um, he's always been good at Monaco. He's always very, very strong at Baku, and he's very, very good here. Um, so there's no question of that. And when you look at the troughs, all drivers have got, you know, peaks and troughs. But when you look at the troughs of, of his form, they're always at more conventional tracks. They're never at these sort of places. I think Leclerc's the best driver on street tracks as it stands. I don't, I don't think Perez can quite lay claim to to being the out, outright best. Certainly stronger, but. I think uh, I think there's there's some there's something about Leclerc on street tracks. That's what I, I I love, and I can't think of a street track we've been on where he's been weak. I think the um, the thing about Leclerc and uh, Perez and street circuits is that he is so much better on street circuits than on conventional tracks. That's what uh, you know the, the distinction about 
his performance, his level of performance on a, on a street track. Um, but if you're talking about who's ultimately, the, I, th- I think there are several better <laughs> on the street tracks than Leclerc's one. I'd say Max Verstappen's another. Nor- Norris say, has a good record as well, I'd and he was Lewis, good again here this yeah. weekend. And let's not forget that Verstappen would have been on pole miles faster yeah, than even quite, the different postcodes yeah. apparently yeah. on base. And could quite possibly, it's, it's not, you know, if, if, if everything had gone straightforwardly, it's not inconceivable he could have won by, you know, 20 seconds or more. And then Perez's performance wouldn't have looked, you know, quite the same. Uh, Lewis Hamilton's another one. Um, they're all drivers, th- those ones I've named, who are exceptional on any type of track. Um, so saying that a driver who is very good on a street track but not good on other types of track, it, it makes him a bit of a specialist, yes. But uh, I don't think it means that he's performing at a level beyond those guys on a street track. I don't believe he is. Scott, Perez did get a five-second penalty after the race. That was for a safety car infringement. took a few hours to sort that one out. Can you explain exactly what he did wrong and why this punishment was chosen? Because it was actually quite complicated in the end, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a little bit. Um, Ultimately, obviously, the penalties, plural, didn't change the outcome of the race. But the simplest way to break it down is that we're aware, based on what the stewards have said across two different documents, which is an unusual thing to to see, um, we, we can be sure that there were at least three occasions where... Perez wasn't within 10 car lengths of the safety car um, before he was allowed to to, to drop back. Um, So basically, the first time was during the first uh, safety car uh, period. He dropped back too far um, between turns 13 and 14. And basically, his argument afterwards when he went and spoke to the stewards was that it was you know tricky conditions and difficult the safety cars stronger in certain parts of the circuit and th- than others so some places it's just an ebb and flow basically behind the safety car and the stewards sort of took this into account and said yeah the tr- conditions were tricky but said not so much that it would have been dangerous or unreasonable to expect Perez to be closer so that was a breach but because of the nature of the conditions, they thought, oh, it's only a reprimand. They're not going to give him a sporting penalty for, for, for that. So that was the first offence. But then there was a second one which got him a five-second penalty and two penalty points on his licence, I think, as well. And that was for, the, I guess, the second safety car period. I think the first one was on lap 10 and this one was lap 34, I think. And basically what happened is Perez had dropped back more than 10 car lengths, I think between turns 9 and 10, which prompted... Uh, a warning from the race director to Red Bull and said, he's dropped back too far, tell him to get closer and not to do this anymore. Red Bull relayed that message to Perez, but then through turns 13 and 14 again, as he did in the first offence, he fell back more than 10 car lengths again. And so on this one, the stewards were like, well, you've already done it once. Um, you, You had an explicit warning a few corners before to get closer and didn't. And because you've had because of these factors, actually, no, on this repeat offence, it's worth a five-second time penalty. And I, the one thing that I wasn't sure about, which I have inquired, and I've got sort of an answer, but not, an, not a completely concrete one, but I think that's just because the right people weren't around to, by the time I was able to ask this question, is if Perez got that warning between turn nine and ten, why is that not its own breach? Because the only reason they did that is because he fell more further back. And I think it's because the FIA doesn't want to be dr- draconian, with the 10 car length rule because it's 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 I think it's easy also 10 car lengths very difficult to measure from 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 a driver's eye so you have to have an, a degree of leniency and I kind of feel like they have a rule which is a bit of a 
everyone can fall back a little bit beyond 10 car lengths from time to time. But if you get a hurry up, don't do it again. And I almost feel like that gets applied in each safety car period effectively because different circumstances. So I think that's why that got treated as a as it was, as a warning rather than an extra breach. I suspect if that had been its own breach and then there'd been another one a few corners later, Perez would have had a more severe penalty and maybe it would have cost him the win. But as it was, that was uh, that's that was the logic that the FAA stewards uh, took to it. And it meant that Perez escaped a significant penalty feels unfair because it almost sounds like he dodged it but yeah it's why he committed several offences basically but not to a degree that cost him the victory which I think is fair enough isn't it it's one of those things that I don't think anyone wants to see a victory changed after the event unless there's a very very strong reason for it five second penalty seems reasonable we should say Mark that he did pull that gap on Leclerc and it was quite touch and go wasn't it because he only just got over the five seconds on that 57 then the 58 was the key one because Leclerc lost a load of time and it was only a 59 lap race so that actually was it was and I think that's actually um, a reflection of the pattern that we saw in the race between the two cars and I think you what we were seeing when Leclerc was putting the pressure on early in the stints um, and then Perez was quicker at the end. I think that was just a different tyre usage of the cars and I think the Red Bull was better on the tyres over the duration of a stint even though the Ferrari tended to fire up its tyres quicker and was quicker initially. Let's talk a bit about Charles Leclerc. Mark. He was on pole position, ninth time this season. He ended up with second place ahead of teammate Carlos Sainz. How big a missed opportunity was this for Ferrari, given Verstappen was buried down the order? Oh, yeah, obviously it was a missed opportunity, but I don't think they did anything particularly wrong. Um, when you look at the, when you compare the starts, I mean, it was all decided at the start, the first few hundred yards, the, the respective starts of uh, Perez and Leclerc. And Leclerc gets away better, actually, than Perez. And, and you can see as he's accelerating on his trajectory with Perez on his left, if you're looking at it from Leclerc's car, you can see all of a sudden there's a, he was probably in third gear by this time, there's a patch of tarmac which is a bit darker than the rest, which looks as though it's a bit damper. And just as he gets onto that, you hear the wheels spin up. And in that instant, Perez is alongside and through. And that, that's all that decided it. And I think, um, you know, to say that they they, they, they did anything wrong wouldn't, um, wouldn't really be accurate. I think Leclerc give it as much as he could. There weren't any overtaking opportunities, given that even by the time we got onto slicks, the um, the track was only dry on line. It remained damp offline for the whole duration. Um, and that was it. You know, the DRS didn't really work. The, the track layout just wasn't conducive to making that a pass possible. Um, the situation whereby the, 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 the stops came at the changeover from... Uh, inters to slicks meant that the overcut would work rather than the undercut so Perez was able to just respond whenever Leclerc came in and uh, had we been in a more conventional race he wouldn't have had that luxury he would have had to you know um, try to second guess what Leclerc was going to do in, 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 and be in danger of being undercut but he was never in any danger of that because the old inter was always going to be quicker on the on that lap than the, 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 the new uh, slick because it would take too long to fire up. And of course, Ferrari had a slow stop just to, just to make allow even, a little yeah. bit of extra relaxation. Yeah. Just one of those things, isn't it? Scott, James Harvey has a question about Carlos Sainz, who finished third. He says, no real pace from Sainz today. Even more significant given it was Perez in P1 and not Max? Uh, it was a bit of a, 
I was quite disappointed actually with signs this weekend. I, and I suspect he was as well. Um, felt a little bit more like um, sort of the early part of the season, really, where he just never quite seemed to be on Leclerc's level. And obviously, we, we were talking in the uh, a little bit before about Leclerc excels at street circuits and did a great job this weekend. But where signs just seemed to to, to fade, and uh, I feel like sign, I feel like signs is. I don't want to say he's dipped, but I think it's been a bit of a trend now because I thought he was reasonable at Spa, relative, like obviously Leclerc was out of position, so we didn't really get a direct comparison. But Zanvoort, Zanvoort, he just just gradually slipped back from, from Leclerc and was at, obviously, the mercy of the Mercedes. And then Monza, Monza, obviously Leclerc was the one who led the fight there. Not... not not the easiest to make a direct comparison, but yeah, it just feels like just feels like he hasn't quite got got that last tenth or two, and the way in which he sort of fell back today, I don't know. I, I expected more, partly because I think signs can be very good in these conditions. But you were explaining earlier that it's more out and out wet conditions that maybe we we should expect him to star. Yeah, that's when he's been really, really mega. But Science himself, as you say, he was disappointed. He said in the press conference that he lost a little bit of confidence. He says you lose a bit of confidence when you have a few moments and you're worried about ending up in the wall. But he did say he needs to have a good look at it with his engineers because he, he said this is one of my strongest sort of conditions. So he was hoping he'd do well. And he's good around Singapore as well. So Science, I think, a little bit puzzled and, and disappointed. As the initial question said, this was a, a Perez race you had to beat Perez to win, not Verstappen. That's a very different proposition. So he'll have seen it as a chance slipping away. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Mark, let's talk Verstappen versus Hamilton because we haven't seen many of their battles this season. They did cross swords while fighting down the order on their way to 7th and ninth, respectively. But unusually, we did see both off the road during the race with Hamilton crunching his front wing. Were you surprised to see two of the best getting caught out? Your initial reaction is, oh, that's unusual. But then, you you know, you, you, you analyse it all afterwards and you look at how little grip there was offline and how nobody could make it work. Um, it was only in the very early stages of the race, after Max made his... Um, he got in Andy stall at the start, um, and cars had were all on cold tyres, and the 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 the, um, the grip between online and offline wasn't that different. Uh, it was only then that Max was able to pick a few people off, and they were about the only proper overtakes of the race. But once once it's once conditions stabilised, nobody could do it. So um, you know, full marks for trying to the, to them both really, but. Um, yeah, that, that's that's just how it was, and I think it's maybe significant that um, they were the two bold enough to to really give it a go. Um, but, you know, yeah, they 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 crossed swords, but you, you, ultimately the the Red Bull was still half a second faster than a Merck, really. So it wasn't that surprising that Max emerged ahead. It was. I I, I was I was surprised by the nature of Lewis's mistakes because the first one came 
unprompted. He, he wasn't he wasn't trying to move. It just seemed to get. It did. It did seem like the Merc was on a knife edge with the bouncing and the low grip. So maybe it was always prone. We saw Russell obviously having some problems through practice. I, I know that he had a he claimed. He said there was a breaking issue in qualifying. His theory was that that was why he ended up um, going off a couple of times in practice. But I'm not 100 percent sure if that was actually the case. That's not me doubting him. I, I just genuinely don't know. Um, so maybe there was a bit of a mitigating factor there for for Hamilton. But like the one where he ploughed into the wall head on, I thought was really out of character and a rookie, uh, not a rookie mistake. Sorry, that wasn't what I meant to say. A, a, a mistake not befitting his experience effectively. It was not a rookie mistake, but it was not the mistake you expect a seven-time world champion to make. That's why he was very apologetic over the radio. Yeah, exactly. But then the sec- I thought, I thought, I honestly thought the one where he went wide was kind of silly because I, always, I just kind of feel like Lewis should know better than in that corner to go offline. And it was almost like he realised, what am I doing? And then tried to back out of it. And then but by that point, it was too late. He was on the wet stuff and slid wide. It had a little bit of the Imola last year, didn't it? When it he did, went yeah. off a toaster impatience, going on, impatience, offline yeah. to yeah. lap George Russell yeah. because he wanted to get a move on. So, and, yeah. and just not being, just that bit, being just like, it's almost like, like briefly losing sight of what is actually happening on track because you're just kind of like, almost like lulled into that, where would you normally position your car if you were racing someone? Um, but just quickly on the on, on the Max one as well, I mean, he said that he just bottomed out really badly on the inside, front wheels off the ground briefly, big lock up, obviously, through that massive, massive double flat spot. Um, that was another one where I actually think little bit of a, maybe that was a sign of the fact that he'd been a bit frustrated earlier on and suddenly there was an opportunity to make a bit of ground up. And he just, just a little bit of the old Max impatience because I have a sneaking suspicion having spoken to uh, Lando Norris after the race that he was very very proud of the way he'd uh, suckered Max into sending one down the inside where there wasn't going to be any grip yeah that certainly seemed to be the case but obviously in Verstappen's case Mark he was down the grid because of the fuel mm. issue in qualifying perhaps you can very briefly explain why he aborted what would have been a, a mighty pole lap yeah I mean they, they, they realised two corners from the end that he wasn't going to have a litre of fuel left if he was to complete that lap and do the, um, the, you know, the lap back into the pits. And therefore, uh, the usual the penalty for that is exclusion from qualifying, which means you have to start at the back of the grid. It's a very difficult thing to judge how, how much fuel to put in when you, you're doing a multiple lap run in a wet because you don't know how quick the track is changing. You don't know exactly how, how hard you're going to be able to drive it. Um, yeah, and then there, there, there were... Competing with a very, you know, closely matched Ferrari, and um, you, you don't want to be given a, a tenth or a couple of tenths a second away on on fuel weight. Um, so yeah, they, as it happened, he got out of sync because they asked him to back off on his penultimate lap, which in, in hindsight would have been good enough for pole in itself, um, because he was gonna at the when the track was at its then quickest, he was gonna catch. Uh, I think it was Gasly. And that lap was going to be ruined. So they said, back off because you're going to be whisked. And essentially, the reason they asked him to do that was because he was going to be whisked and fuel for a lap that wasn't going to be good enough because he was going to get caught in traffic and they could see that. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, <laughs> it was just an unfortunate, really, set of circumstances. But, yeah, he, he quite understandably, um, he sort of uh, lost it a little bit uh, afterwards. Yeah, it was all about turn 16 and 17 in qualifying, wasn't it? Because people were struggling there in the low yeah. grip. Leclerc made a mistake on his last lap, but he'd been mighty through there on his 
penultimate for yeah. Schlapp, and that was what gave him pull. Perez was well up, Hamilton was well up, yeah. Verstappen should have been. So it was one of those qualifying sessions. No, no one on the front two no. rows did, did no, a, no, did a top, really good job. The top four all had um, big mistakes on their laps. It's one of those things that can sometimes happen. Probably Fernando Alonso in fifth was the one who did the, the best job of that league group. Let's talk about Grid Rival now, the fancy motorsport game in which the race has its own league. Solid weekend for me, Scott, with 966 points from Verstappen, Leclerc, Sainz, Gasly and Magnussen. With Gasly as my double points talent driver, I had Mercedes as my constructor. That enough to beat you? Yeah, it was. That's a, that's a really good score. For this week. I was having a look at um, some, of the, uh, some of the top scorers in, in, in the league this week, like, you know, the top place people people and uh, you're not far off those so that's a that's a really really good score um i, I was happy with um with my with my week I, I got i got over i got over 900 i had sebastian vessel as my uh, talent driver uh lando norris in there so that's a that was a that was another good score but obviously you own verstappen you don't expect a weekend like that i also had ocon uh who, who suffered a retirement and was on for a rubbish weekend anyway um and obviously mercedes had a had a shocker so yeah lewis's uh, lewis's errors cost me cost me dearly i was head in hands as one of my uh, five drivers uh, slid slid into the barrier nose first that was uh, that was far from ideal and obviously george russell messy weekend and messy race bounced into a couple of cars so i was thinking yeah, he's uh, I'm, I'm not getting any points out of this you sounded like kimmy reichland there far from ideal that's not a good place to be is it well let's have a look elsewhere in the races league the top scorer for the singapore grand prix weekend itself was john shellman with a hefty 1121 points 13 more than the second highest scorer oscar 589-69431 and rolls off the tongue exactly it's a very well-known surname those sequence of numbers and in the overall league standings it's still jackie 789-58103 who leads with raniel dicciardo not far behind grid rival is still open for sign-ups get yourself in the zone for next season and we'll be tracking progress over the year so download the grid rival app or visit the website so you can get involved the link is in the episode description for this podcast well scott two races ago mclaren was 24 points behind alpine in the battle for fourth in the constructors championship and hadn't had a swing in its favor for a very long time yeah it was game over exactly so how did lando norris and daniel ricardo pull fourth and fifth place out of the bag to take a four-point lead over Alpine. Well, Norris was actually in contention for this basically from the start. He, he, he jumped Fernando Alonso. He was very, very pleased with himself for that. He, that was the, I think it was just a, be, a better start that, 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 that got that, that done. And I think this was a race of track position because there were a lot of cars that were really, really close, ma- closely matched in terms of performance. And if you, if you had that edge on, on track position, then, then that was going to be key. But then, you know, Norris was then getting dropped by the by that lead group but not not embarrassingly so and obviously every time the field compressed under the safety car he moved back up and there was a point under the after the safety car when he looked like he could be a threat even to science before ultimately falling back yeah so his um, his pace was really strong even though he felt that actually on raw performance the mclaren was still quite a way off this weekend but he was driving very well um, and obviously Lewis made his mistake. Uh, I was mentioning earlier that Lando sort of almost, almost sort of goaded Max into that move on the inside um, and was very pleased with his positioning. So he almost sort of took care of Max himself by, by, by doing that, benefited from, from Lewis's error and never looked like falling out of that. He only looked like he was going to drop out of fifth because Verstappen was, was coming through. But actually he almost basically outraced Hamilton and Verstappen in, in, in different ways. So completely, completely on merit, I, I would say, Norris being in fourth. Ricardo, fifth place, not 
not on merit, but earned in a different way, not earned through outright performance, earned for a bit of maturity and patience, and by his own admission, a massive slice of luck. It was the the timing of the safety car when Yuki Tsunoda exited stage straight on <laughs> and, and, and caused that caution period, which was just perfectly timed for him to be able to, to, to leapfrog half the field. Um, I think he had had a good first lap to sort of go more closer towards the fringes of the of the points, but I don't think he was ever looking like an absolute stunning contender. But as one or two started to drop out and fall back, he snuck into contention. And then the key thing was he then leapfrogged a bunch of drivers in that sort of lower top 10 region into big point scoring contention. And obviously part of that was the elimination of the two Alpines with, uh, I don't know if they were linked, but definitely two very obvious reliability problems, engine problems. And all of a sudden, back-to-back double, I don't know if it was double DNS for Alpine, but back-to-back zero scores for, for Alonso and Ocon. And all of a sudden, yeah, married with this mega result from McLaren and suddenly this fight for fourth, which it looked like Alpine was going to absolutely cruise to the end of the season and, and rightly finish fourth with what has been the fourth fastest car this year and a big step from 2021. Suddenly, we're back discussing Alpine having weaknesses and McLaren is actually executing its way to, to, to fourth, which would be an overachievement based on its car performance. This is one of those races where going to slicks early was not, a great move as Vettel and Gasly were two of the ones that he jumped because of the um, the safety car intervention. So, you know, just keeping your head, being steady, being experienced as Daniel Ricciardo is, really, really paid off. And that's his best result of the season. I think it's I think it's like his third best, equal third best result of the whole McLaren stint. It did seem like it was a combination of him having to sort of restrain himself, but also the team being aware that it was better to just wait because Ricardo could feel himself getting a bit frustrated in that midfield group. And, you know, and he said, you're almost in that position where it's like, oh, it's not quite coming together. I don't quite have the pace. I can't get past anybody. Oh, it's getting dry. Do I just roll the dice and just go for it? And you almost, and you just have to talk yourself out of, 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 of making that kind of bold gambit. That's, that's for your P15s, P16s, not someone that is sort of just got to chip away at it and be there when it really matters. And probably the driver in that battle for fourth in the Constructors' Championship who was the most unfortunate was Alonso, wasn't he, Mark? Because he drove really, really well this weekend and yeah. came away with nothing. Yeah, yeah, they were quick. Um, he, was, he was quick around here. And he was right with Lando. And I'm sure it would have been a fascinating battle between them. Um, we've seen a few battles between those two this year. and I think they're very, very closely matched. And um, when, when, the, when the McLaren's at a, a good circuit, it tends to be about as good as the Alpine. And those two really get stuck in, and I was looking forward to seeing how that was going to um, play out. Yeah, and a big blow for Alpine to lose those points. Esteban Ocon wasn't going to score points, as Scott mentioned. He had a, a brake glazing problem in Q1 on his final run, which was partly self-inflicted, because that's all about the way you build the temperatures, etc. And, I, and I, I think Ocon played his part in triggering that. Based on um, what you know about who is driving for Alpine next year and who is not driving for Alpine next year, would you be surprised if I told you that Alonso and Ocon had very different views on the quality of Alpine's reliability at the moment? <laughs> Funny that. Who's towing the uh, company line? But yeah, Alonso had a lot of problems earlier in the season. He's had a reasonable run of late, but yeah, back to losing points. How many points do you think he now believes he has lost to reliability? Because this has basically been a lotto number, hasn't it, all season? What number is Fernando going to pull out of the box this week for what he's been cost by Alpine's reliability? Oh, he'll probably be looking at 60, 70. Yeah, probably 60. He, he's, he thinks 60. 
Um, his logic was flawless. Before this weekend, it was about 50 points, so we've lost another 8 or 10 points, so therefore it's about 60. But he did then rather uh, fudge the numbers a little bit to claim, in fact, I think that actually I'd be quite close to the Mercedes if I hadn't lost all of these results, but that would be to give him an extra, he's just randomly given himself an extra 30 or 40 points there as well, so I think he's massively massaging reality. He loves going one step too far, but... Really, really good this weekend and a reminder again of what Alpine is losing next year. Mark, there was also a big shift in the battle down the Constructors' Championship order. Lance Stroll and Sebastian Vettel took 6th and 8th respectively for Aston Martin. That means Aston Martin leaps from ninth to 7th in the Championship ahead of Hassan Alfatari. Was that luck or judgment? Um, I think it was partly that they weren't too bad around here. They, they qualified respectably here. And um, partly, um, maybe AlphaTauri messing up Gasly's strategy a little bit, booster, giving them another boost. Um, yeah, I, mean, I think that was a fair reward, really, for a, a reasonable performance. Isn't that, isn't that just sort of par for the course, really, with Aston Martin's just, just done a better job as a race team, hasn't it, in the likes mm-hmm. of AlphaTauri and Haas this year? They are good on Sundays. Yeah, they, they are. They really yeah. do do well, and they've struggled because the car doesn't qualify well, on top of the fact it's not especially quick. But underneath it all... That is the old racing point for yep. India, just executing races nicely, pretty consistently. Yeah, oh. it's the car that it's the car that's a um, it's an already good car, but it's uh, it's still a good race team. I think that car has sort of slowly got better and better, and it's not it's never it's never a top ten contender on raw pace, but I feel like it's actually quite consistently established itself as like it can be the sixth, seventh fastest car on most weekends now. And I think that that shift into seventh in the championship is actually going to be one of the more underappreciated turnarounds of the season. Because if any, if if we had if we had sat there when we recorded our post Australia podcast and said, "Yeah, Aston Martin have nothing to be worried about. They're definitely going to be ahead of Haas in the championship later this year." No, we we would have we would have just thought, "Well, we're just we're just talking absolute nonsense because that car looks absolutely hideous." But fair play to them because they've been. I think a sign of how good they've been is the number of top 10 finishes they've had. It's just they've had one of those seasons where they've only snuck a 10th here and there. They've finished, they've had, they've had six or seven 10th place finishes this year. And this, this was the first race really since Vettel's strong result in, in Baku where a combination of their better weekends and their good executions combined with a couple of the you know the big players dropping out and some some fortunate circumstances and lo and behold they've got the big point score the big points haul that they were looking for and it's made a massive difference to them in the championship and this team has big ambitions so finishing seventh in the end of the year if they do finish seventh isn't really going to be the be all and end all but if you look at where they were just a couple of races into the season where the slowest car and after three races were the only team about a point I think they've actually done a, a, a quietly very decent job. You know, Stroll's best results of the season in six. We can't completely rule out them catching Alfa Romeo for six. The gap's 15 points, but Alfa Romeo's only scored one point in the last eight. So it's not completely out of the question if Aston Martin can keep chipping away with those minor points finishes. Scott, a question from Thomas Knight. He asks, how much of a disappointment has the season been for Haas, given the car they had at the start of the year? And was this race a good microcosm of their season? Well, you and I were talking about this, weren't we, when... um when I think I think it was in the context of Aston Martin, when I came back from speaking to the Aston team boss Mike Crack, um, has just wasted this season, haven't they? They've wasted so many good chances, and the the reverse of what I said about Aston Martin goes for Haas. If you'd said after two or three races that they'd have this many points and be in this position in the championship with a you know with just a few rounds left, I think we'd have be look, be saying, well, how the hell are they going to throw this away? Because the car looked really competitive, and I think. 
the other thing I said to you earlier before we were recording this is that we're not far off getting to a point where Haas is going to have scored about 50-odd points in the first half of the season and one or two points in the second half of the season. And even by Haas's standards, because they've done this before, started strongly tapered off, that's a really, really poor return. And it doesn't, it doesn't reflect the sus- relatively sustained level of performance that they've had. Now they seem to be getting a bit more out of the, the upgraded car that they introduced just before the summer break. But for whatever reason, clean, clean races, the tyre management, race management in general, strategy, getting caught up in stuff, it's just not coming together. Well, as far as this race being a microcosm, we had it. We had Kevin Magnussen got some front wing damage, self-inflicted. He got the black and orange flag for the third time. He was furious about that. That cost him his shot at points. And Mick Schumacher was in contention for points, got hit by George Russell, and, and that was the end of that. I think I genuinely think I've only seen the, the, the meatball flag, the mechanical flag, used three times while I've been covering Formula One and it's all been to Kevin Magnussen. It's all been this year. Uh, genuinely, I, I know that they joked that this flag seemed to seemed to disappear for years and has been brought back all of a sudden, but I'm sure it's not quite that, but I, ju- I just can't remember seeing it. And then this year, we've just seen it with, and it's the same problem every time. That damage to, the, to, to what is the front wing end plate now where it goes off at an angle and basically hangs outboard. And I assume it's because it could cause a puncture. It doesn't seem to be an integrity issue that it will fly off and hit something. I, I can only assume it's because of the puncture thing. But yeah, it, it just they, I think they have been a bit unlucky with it. I don't think it's necessarily the world's biggest safety concern. And I always just think it's very rare because I don't remember seeing this flag, to be honest, using F1 before this year. Yeah, Kevin Magnussen certainly likes when he had one in Canada and Hungary as well, but that meant he was had the extra pit stop. He was off the back. He got stuck behind Albon. He was struggling with tyres. So, yeah, no chance in the race. Also in that group, Pierre Gasly was very unhappy with the team pitting him when they did. He said there was little communication. They brought him in too early and then he got caught out by the safety car. So he felt a big opportunity was missed there. And that's the thing. Big opportunities missed for Haas, for Alpha Tauri, for Alfa Romeo, but it was McLaren and Aston Martin that made the most of it. Mark, we saw a number of incidents in this race. Let's have a quick look at some of them. Nicholas Latifi was given a five-place grid penalty for the Japanese Grand Prix for causing that collision with Joe Guan Yu early on that put both out. What did you make of that one? Totally his fault. I mean, there's no no question. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know if he realised that uh, Joe was even there, but uh, yeah, he didn't give Joe any option to not have that accident. Yeah, it's pretty much a open and shut case that one Joe of course had had a pretty disastrous start he bogged down at the start went into anti-stall dropped almost to the back so he was trying to make his way back up and was working on finding a way past Latifi Scott the stewards did take a very brief look at that contact between George Russell and Mick Schumacher at turn one but decided no formal investigation was necessary do you agree with that one um that one was a lot trickier to to judge than the Latifi Joe one I mean when I first saw it I thought George had been really clumsy and I thought it was a bit I thought it was quite dire, to be honest, because it looked like he just drifted across on him unnecessarily with Mick on the, the edge of the road, and, and, and that was that. But actually, they then saw a replay of it, and there was not a load, but there was a reasonable amount of space to the right of the Haas. So it almost felt like, yeah, George definitely moves over on him, but it sort of does feel like Mick's got somewhere to go. And I, I, it's hard to tell whether that is George meandering and being careless, in which case, if you could say that conclusively, I think it's probably worth a penalty. But if it's just a, if it's conditions related, if it's because he thinks the Haas is moving right or something like that, then it's a bit more of a racing incident. So, yeah, my first, my gut instinct on it was that, that Russell was to blame and could probably pick up a penalty for it. But I was a bit more unsure afterwards. And in that situation, if the stewards basically say, 
we're just going to chalk that one up to a racing incident. I, ha I have less of an issue with that because I, I don't have a firm opinion myself. Yeah, with the caveat of the fact I've not seen the onboards of it properly yet, it did look like one that should have been a penalty because a driver's not obliged to move out of your way if you move over on them. And if you're Schumacher, you want to hold the attacking driver on the on the wet bit of the track. But I do need to look at that one in, in detail. But I was surprised there was at least no really formal investigation. That seemed very, very... It certainly odd. seemed to merit one. Yeah, and my gut feeling is it, it was a penalty subject to having another review of the evidence. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. We'll get back to the pod in a moment, but first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, we'll finish this podcast as always with a blast through some of the listener questions. It will come as no surprise that we had a few covering the delayed start to the race, which is why we haven't talked about this yet. So, Scott, first up, Ben Johnson asks, why not create a fast start procedure like MotoGP does so we can take advantage of the best opportunities to get on-track action happening? Uh, that's a very good point. I haven't thought about it. I haven't asked anyone about it. Part of me kind of feels like I suspect F1 wants to protect the pageantry. Around the race start, there's a lot of process that goes into it. I I also get a feeling that like I think like the, the each race and each promoter they're quite pr proud of the li little stuff that they do around it. Not just the national anthem, but whenever if you have like if you have marching bands or musical performances or whatever it is, fly past all of that nonsense. Um, the stuff that makes the Sebastian Vettel very angry, basically. Um, I feel like that's the sort of stuff that they want to retain if they can. Um, there's also just like uh, a lot of the time it's because it's all enshrined in the regulations and there's certain things they want to work through. And I guess the point is, is that just because the process has been delayed, basically, because you're waiting for the weather to turn, it doesn't mean you can run through all the things you need to run through in time to get it ready. I don't necessarily think it needs to take that long. It was There was like an hour or so, isn't there, before, because you had the 10 minute warning and then the whole procedure starts, which takes an hour to do. So it did feel like a bit too long and it can probably be um expedited a little bit but i don't have an exact answer because it's not something that's actually come up in discussions with them but it was too wet to start at the scheduled time yeah no question so you know i mean yeah we started an hour late an hour and a bit later but you know even if you just followed the conditions 
it would have probably been something like 45 minutes later anyway. So, I don't know. What's, what's, what's the big deal? It's, I, I was, the, one comparison I would make, just in case anyone's listening to this and is familiar with another sport like football, is if, if, if kickoff is delayed at a football match by, let's say, 30 minutes because team bus is late or whatever the reason is, you don't then basically do it so that once the opposition team has finally turned up, you just run out and just crack straight on with kickoff. You still have the little bits of pageantry before that. They go into the tunnel, they come out the tunnel, they shake, all of that. Like, there are just, sometimes things are just done, aren't they? Look, because it's part of the build-up. And if there's no time constraint on getting the race underway and then getting the race finished, which there wasn't because we delayed everything, then... You can just run you can just run everything through in full i mean we're the we're the ones that lost out because um <laughs> it's a night, yeah, exa- exactly yeah. It's, a, it's a night race here everything starts late enough as it is so we didn't need that delay <laughs> i think the key thing is it's applicable to other events like if you had a spa last year kind of scenario you wouldn't want to have say an hour and a half of raceable conditions and you spend an hour of it messing about so yes probably, i agree with it's that it's probably that, worth yes. having an emergency fast start procedure i think for future use but it wouldn't really have uh, been necessary for here uh, mark matt ridley says spa last year as well as singapore this year had massive confusion over when the three-hour timer starts would it not be simpler to say the countdown begins as soon as the formation lap does um well the countdown begins when it, the, the schedule start time doesn't it um, or the rescheduled start. Or if there's a change in the scheduled time, it, it begins from then. Which is basically know? the same thing as he suggested, effectively. Uh, a, a lot of the confusion was about the fact that people thought that the, the three-hour clock, that, that, no, you've got to get the yeah, whole race into exactly. the three hours. Exactly. You got, you got, you've got a three-hour window in which to fit in a, an, a race which might go to two hours or might go to 61 laps. That's, yeah. which, 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 didn't, which didn't start yeah, and you can you, you can you can start that countdown whenever whenever you want within the you know constraints the, of the, the circuit being dismantled, etc. The the issue is in the regulations referring just explicitly to the scheduled start time, which, which was a eight pm local time. It, it wasn't you can't you can't change the scheduled start time and then be just like oh no this is now the new one. It, it isn't the eight pm was and remains the scheduled start time of this Grand Prix. It was then rescheduled. Yeah, it was a slight. Uh, vagueness in the regulations and the fact that so many people i think a lot of the tv commentary and that kind of thing at one stage said that the, the race clock had started the three-hour race clock had started earlier caused that confusion but it was relatively straightforward uh, in the end once it was clear the fi could have communicated all little bits quicker scott danny elliott asks why the race didn't start sooner given the full wet tire clears 60 liters per second well we see we see this all the time though Every, we, we we have an absolute you know, torrential downpour, tracks massively sodden. We can't race, we can't race, we can't race. Everyone out is out and everyone's immediately asking for intermediates. Yeah, I think the problem here is the, is the wet tyre. The specific wet tyre that we have is just, it's no good for anything other than following the safety car. Um, it, 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 it's as soon as you get the, you know, the slightest little bit of um, Drying it, it just massively overheats, and uh, you, you you're better off on on inters. So it's 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 a problematical tire that has got a very wide range of conditions. If it had a wider range of conditions, I mean, we used to we used to have a much better um, wet tire than this in the days of the tire war, and we could race in much uh, have heavier rain than we do now. It's the it's the tire that's the problem. Is that because I seem to recall not that long ago Pirelli's full wet tire getting sledged because it just offered no grip. So they just tried to make it grippier and then it's just 
falling away in terms of longevity. (laughs) So it's got no grip and it overheats and degrades. I can't imagine why people don't want to use it. The drivers all just refer to it as the safety car tyre. That's what they think of it as. It's the the tyre we have to put on when it's a safety car start. Yeah. Clear some water and then get on with it with the intermediate. Yeah, that's the the best way to uh, look at it, I think. And in fact, Matt, uh, in fact, Mark, you've kind of answered Dan Booth's next question, which is about whether they should have started earlier because of ultra caution on, on the start. But I guess if we didn't have a suitable tyre, that's why I couldn't start earlier. <laughs> exactly, you've, you've answered that question well. Scott, Bill Adkins asks, how does the FI justify limiting the number of wet and intermediate tyres per driver given their safety features, not performance ones, suggesting that the allocation is bad for the sport? Isn't this purely down to sustainability and wanting to limit the number of tyres at a race, right? Well, and practicality. You can only have so many wet and intermediate. Yeah. So, the place. So, so no, I, I think that's. I, I, I kind of. I get the principle of the the question, and in a world in which there were no issues at all with uh, unlimited tyres, I'm sure you would want to have more, so that there is there is the option of having as many as you need. But that that's just unfortunately not the realities of the world that we live in. It's more freight and more cost and more resources. And- yeah, all those things. Exactly. You've got to mount all the tyres and have them all hanging around the place. So it just That's environmentally terrible as well. Because yeah. obviously, as soon as these tyres are fitted, they then can't ever be used again. So it would just waste loads of resource for no reason. And it's all related to the supply agreement with Pirelli and everything. So it's all, it's all bound up in that. Mark, Kevin Prendergast asks, is it just me or do the race directors take far too long to decide on a VSC or safety car this year? Oh, I mean, the race directors are new to the job and probably are a bit more conservative than, um, you know, maybe Charlie was when he was, you know, very well experienced in this. But it's important to get it's important to get it right. And as we say, they're working under certain limitations, i.e. <laughs> suitable tires for the extreme conditions. So I don't, I don't really think we should be giving them a hard time on this. And sometimes you've got to leave a little bit of time for the car to recover because sometimes they just go off. There was one early this year where was it a spa session was stopped because Leclerc went off. It was one of the practice sessions, I think, and he just went off and then drove out the gravel and it was pointless. Mm-hmm. So you can be a little bit too trigger happy. So, yeah, they might seem a little... Like it can feel like it's a lag because you think, oh, this could be a safety car and it takes a while. But probably that's, uh, that's for the better that they're a little bit cautious. Scott, a question to you from another Scott, in this case, Scott Harris, who asks, do you think the root cause of the low-speed shunts was the slippery conditions, the new aero rules, or perhaps a combination of both? Yeah, I think it's just a mix of all the factors that we saw this this weekend. I mean, we saw even when it wasn't raining that it was very easy to, to, to just go a little bit too far, um, even in the dry. So not really a surprise that as the conditions worsened it got harder and obviously once you get to qualifying in the race everyone's just on the limit that little bit more so not not really not a surprise at all and all of those factors came together the cars are harder to drive um i don't really think that the inters are particularly great either and also the another factor is parts of the track were resurfaced but not all of them are and apparently the resurfaced bits were awful <laughs> the bits that the, the old bits of track were really grippy and then the, the, yeah. the new bits were shiny and rubbish and yeah for a big proportion of that race there wasn't a, an ideal tyre because the circuit was so patchily dry and wet in, in some places perfectly okay for slicks and other places absolutely no way was it ready for slicks so you were driving on a compromised tyre the whole time you know for, for, for about half the race you could say that about every race, though. Considering they drive with Pirellis, and then and then when you get onto the the slick phase of the race, you, you, you're driving on a, a racing line, which you can't get off. 
because it's still damp because it takes forever to to, um, to dry around here because it's it's humid and it, there's, there's no sunlight. Well, there is, but not when the race is on. <laughs> I haven't seen any. <laughs> <laughs> Next question for you, Mark. Elliot Crossan says, one more win in the Red Bull RB18 will be the most successful car over a single season that Adrian Newey has ever built. Is this the greatest Newey car ever? Certainly a formidable racing car, and it's one that's been developed impressively well, especially given we're in the cost capita era. Um, that sort of touches on a, one of the weekend's controversies, but um, <laughs> it's a great car. Was the best ever new? No, I did the best ever new car for me. Is the still the ninety-two Williams FW14B, which was quite often two seconds a lap faster than the next quickest car. So. If anyone wants to hear a little bit more about that, it might be worth having a listen to our sister podcast, Bring Back V10s. Well, Scott, as Mark alluded to, there we couldn't get to the end of this podcast without a cost cap question for more on that do check out the podcast we recorded a few days ago that really delved into this particular news story and the expected breaches that the fi is going to announce later in the week rupert stevens asks regarding the budget cap surely it's a bad look for the fia that this has been leaked ahead of the conclusion of the process liberty has been largely successful in reducing leaks and speculation shouldn't the fia do likewise i'm not entirely sure liberty's been that much better at uh, keeping the bed leaks of uh, and speculation and whatnot we're constantly talking about races that may or may not happen and all sorts of things going on manufacturers that may or may not want to join all, all of that stuff um i think the fa will be disappointed mainly because this is a sort of thing where they they preach transparency but transparency is always on their terms and they, there's information that they want to release and they only want to release that when it is official and especially with this kind of thing where, yeah, the, the formal process hasn't been completed yet. It will only be completed when the teams are or aren't given their certificates of compliance with the budget cap. I still firmly believe that as of the start of the weekend, when all of this um, emerged, that the FIA internally knew who had and hadn't breached the budget cap. I think that part had been concluded. What hadn't been concluded is how they were going to 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 act on that. What were the breaches going to be defined as? What were the punishments going to be? So... While we heard several team bosses talk this weekend about what they did and didn't know, I don't disbelieve that necessarily. I don't think any of the team bosses necessarily did 100% know what the exact outcome was, but I think there's a difference. There's a, it's not binary. It's not you knew nothing or you knew absolutely everything. They were great. I knew by Friday morning that the FAA was preparing to announce two breaches of two different types. And if I know that, then lots of other people in the F1 paddock will because there will be much many more people within every single team that are more plugged into that stuff than me. So this stuff did get out. Um, it's just to, to, to which degree and, and, and to who knew what. So by the, end of the, by the end of this weekend, yeah, we are expecting two breaches to be announced. I'm not going to name the teams. You can listen to the other podcast or read all the stuff that we've done on the race, on the race website um, for, for, for all of that. But I, I think by the time we reconvene in Suzuka on Thursday in the paddock this may all well be public and we may even who knows have discussed it on another podcast by then yeah well there'll be lots of coverage of it when it does emerge so head to the website and make sure you subscribe to the podcast to get the latest there well thanks very much to Scott and Mark for your insight make sure you head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen as there's plenty to read there and also ensure you download our new app simply search for the race media in your app store of choice and there's lots more to listen to from our sister podcasts including the race mojo gp podcast and to watch on our youtube channel the races keep on coming so stay with us for everything you need to know from the japanese grand prix 
The Athletic.